Alarming new reporting indicates that a deranged Donald Trump seeks to go full Emperor Palpatine in a second potential presidential term, and everybody should be on guard. So Darth Vader isn't bad enough? He's going Emperor Palpatine? Oh, brother. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio, on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans, on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico, on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle, on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950KTNF amongst other fine terrestrial affiliates across this land. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing Planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around, quote, really fantastic guy (laughs) who also does a great informative show that I love, says Val and Greg on Facebook. Thanks, Val and Greg. That was very nice, Val and Greg. I agree. It was my birthday, so they were just being kind. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, it's that guy from bradblog.com here with you today. Thank you very much for joining us. For another all-too-thrilling edition of the Bradcast. So, hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. Uh, <laughs> uh, we, uh, I should know, well, you've got a Green News report coming up a little bit later. Yes. But there's just so much going on all at the same time, not just in the climate, but in the politics. So, allow me, if you will... To start here, uh, in theory, you know, when an attorney or a judge who are both officers of the court are found to have violated the law in some way, in in theory, they are supposed to receive a harsher penalty for having done so because as officers of the court, they are expected to know better. So, you know, it's presumed that they should know what the law is. They shouldn't break it. Same is Supposed to be true when it comes to uh, law enforcement, when it comes to cops who violate the law. All of their penalties for what they've done should be higher in some respect than if you or I broke the same law. Or at least, you know, the, the, the burden of proving their innocence is higher because it's presumed that law enforcement officials and officers of the court, etc., know what the laws are which they have violated. So I would like to argue that the uh, the same theory should hold true when it comes to election officials 
who violate, in particular, election law. They should know better. Their punishment should be even higher or the, you know, the burden to demonstrate they were they're innocent. That should uh, that, that they, you know, didn't know that they were violating the law. That should be higher when it comes to them. And as we are beginning to see more and more election officials held to account for attempts to violate various election laws following Donald Trump's lies about the election in 2020 and his various failed attempts to steal that election, I really do hope that uh, these election officials who who, who partook in this madness will receive extra, extra punishment for violating the election laws and the sacred role that they play in helping to carry out elections. I add that uh, thought for your consideration, along with this story out today from AP. A town clerk in Michigan will be barred from running any elections after being charged earlier this week by the state attorney general for acting as a fake elector in 2020 for then President Donald Trump. On Thursday, the Michigan Bureau of Elections notified Stan Grott a Republican who has served as the Shelby Township clerk since 2012. That is eight years prior to 2020, for those keeping score at home. He was notified that he will be prohibited from administering elections while the charges against him are pending. Grot was among the 16 Republicans charged earlier this week by Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel for allegedly signing certificates that falsely stated that Trump won the 2020 uh, election in the state, as opposed to Joe Biden, who actually won the 2020 election in the state. Each of the 16 people who were charged faced the same eight criminal charges, including forgery and conspiracy to commit election forgery, each count of which, by the way, carries charges of anywhere from four to 14 years for each count. And each one of them have been charged with eight counts. So that's a lot of jail time that some of these folks are potentially looking at, or at least should be looking at, particularly when it comes to someone like Grot, who actually held the sacred responsibility of running elections in his township. Now, there was a surprising number of uh, of folks among these 16 people who were charged after falsely claiming to be the duly elected electors. A surprising number of them were in their late 80s or in their 80s and in In their their late late 70s 70s and early 80s. Yes. So I would not be surprised, um, you know, if, if some of those folks are likely to argue that they had no idea what they were doing, that they were put up to it by someone. And, you know, they didn't understand that the document they were signing, uh, what it actually was or the legal penalty for falsifying it or something. I expect they uh, they may try and make that argument, whether that will hold up in court. Well, that remains to be seen. But I wouldn't be surprised to see that defense from a number of these indicted Republicans. Oh, we had no idea. 
They'll try that, whether it's, you know, whether it'll work, I don't know. Whether it's appropriate, I don't know. But I wouldn't be surprised if in several cases that argument uh, is made. And it's possible that that argument is true in a number of those cases, that some of these people were actually used by others who knew better, who put them into this role, telling them that, oh, this is a great honor, rather than telling them that, oh, this is a crime. But an election official, especially a long-serving one entrusted with upholding free and fair and transparent elections, should absolutely have known better, should absolutely have known, you know, who actually won and who actually lost the state, and should be held, in, in, in my opinion, to the highest possible standard for defrauding the public in that regard, as this Stan Grot guy appears to have done. Uh, as AP notes, conducting elections is one of the primary duties of a clerk in Michigan. Grot is an elected official and will continue in his other roles for now as township clerk, like uh, preparing agendas and recording meetings. Shelby Township is a suburb of Detroit and holds uh, a population of close to 80,000 people. The letter provided by the Secretary of State's office to Grot says that while he is innocent until proven guilty, his alleged role in the fake elector scheme, quote, undermines voter confidence in the integrity of elections. Well, I should say so. It <laughs> certainly does. And I hope that he and a number of other such election officials who have yet to face accountability for these election fraud crimes during and after 2020, frankly, pay the highest price for those crimes. A number of local election clerks across the country, AP notes, have faced le uh, legal consequences for alleged crimes committed after embracing Trump's lie that the 2020 election was stolen as part of his own effort to steal the election. A former clerk in Mesa County, Colorado, Tina Peters, she's awaiting trial on seven felony and three misdemeanor counts after an alleged effort to breach voting system software used across the country after the 2020 election, according to her state indictment. Stephanie Scott, a small-town clerk in Michigan, accused of improperly handling voting equipment, after casting doubt on Biden's election victory, she was stripped of her election duties back in 2021 and was ousted by voters earlier this year. Well done, voters. Sadly, nobody yet involved with unlawfully breaching voting system software in Coffee County, Georgia, has been held to account. Uh, including the uh, local and state election officials in Georgia as well as state Republican Party members who carried out or aided and abetted or helped to cover up those crimes in Georgia. Perhaps that will change when Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis brings her expected charges in the coming weeks. And, of course, the Brad blog and Bradcast continue to investigate that matter uh, in Coffee County either way. In the Michigan fake electors case, township clerk Grot and others allegedly met inside the Michigan Republican Party headquarters on December 14, 2020, signed their names to a certificate falsely stating they were the qualified electors for Trump and transmitted the false documents to Congress and the National Archives. 
according to an affidavit released by Nestle's office on Tuesday. So, yeah, they met inside the Michigan Republican Party headquarters to sign this thing, not in the state capitol where they're supposed to meet. In addition to Grot, the uh, the group includes the uh, the head of the Republican National Committee's chapter in Michigan. That would be Kathy Burden, as well as the former co-chair of the Michigan Rep- Republican Party, Michonne Maddock who recently bragged about not being in jail. That may not uh, hold up for long. (laughs) And Kent Vanderwood, the mayor of Wyoming, Michigan, in the western part of the state where he is facing calls to recuse himself from official duties as he awaits trials. Frankly, it's not just election officials who should face the highest penalties here, but elected officials, you know, who are serving uh, in, in a public trust. The 16 charged individuals in Michigan are scheduled to appear in district court in August, August 10, for their arraignment. In the past, by the way, Clerk Grot has also served as a county commissioner, a county deputy treasurer, and assistant secretary of state. So, yeah, Stan knew better and should have the book thrown at him if found guilty. Though he should still, by the way, be able to vote. From prison, as a felon, yes, as all should be allowed, even though Michigan does not allow that. According to the uh, to his Shelby County biography, he held all of those positions and he sought the Republican nomination for secretary of state back in 2018 before he dropped out due to what he claimed to be family obligations and, quote, timing and the overall political atmosphere. How's the overall political atmosphere doing for you now, Stan? So, uh, listen, I am not a uh, I'm not a partisan voter, but I have realized of late that I am becoming more and more of a single issue voter. That single issue. If you are pro democracy, if you are a pro democracy candidate running against an anti democracy uh, and or pro autocracy candidate, well, I cannot uh, period uh, support you if you are anti-democracy. It's pretty simple. I don't care which party you are aligned with. And frankly, if you are uh, terrible on a bunch of other issues, but you are pro-democracy and running against an anti-democracy or, or pro-autocracy candidate, I will be voting for the supporter of democracy every time. Easy. So uh, it occurred to me that maybe that makes me a single-issue voter to some extent. But given where we are in these times of democracy versus autocracy, and make no mistake, that is where we are. Well, if I'm a single issue voter, I'm okay with that. Now, by the way, if there are more than one pro-democracy candidates running in an election, well, that's a different matter. I'm happy to see the contest fought out between those candidates on all sorts of issues before making a decision on which one to support. But, you know, in some respect, I expect at least the 2024 general elections will likely be an easy contest to make sense of in trying to select who I, at least, will be voting for in most, if not all, cases. And sadly, of late, the two major parties, Democrats and Republicans, are sort of self-sorting into this (laughs) pro-democracy, 
an anti-democracy party. Pro-democracy versus pro-autocracy. A story that I've been trying to get to since the uh, July 4th holiday helps to uh, make some sense of this in as much as sense can be had. A federal judge has blocked a Florida election law that would have set limits on voter registration in the state because we'd hate to have everybody who is legally eligible to vote actually being able to cast a ballot in a democracy now, wouldn't we, Governor DeSantis? Chief U.S. District Judge for the Northern District of Florida, Mark Walker, said while it's correct for the state to, quote, seek integrity in its electoral system, Florida's solutions for preserving election integrity are too far removed from the problems it has put forward as justifications and therefore violate the U.S. Constitution. The legislation in question was passed this spring. It was signed by DeSantis. It makes it illegal for people convicted of certain felonies and for non-citizens, including those who have permanent legal residency in the U.S., to collect or handle voter registration applications. So nobody can help anybody else register to vote unless they're already a citizen and unless they've never been to prison. Correct. They just can't help anybody. Right. And what does this have to do with election integrity? How does no it idea. It? Yeah. Yeah. Third party organ. It doesn't. It right. doesn't. It just makes it harder for certain people to vote. And for third, others to participate. Third party organizations could, in fact, face fines of up to $50,000 for each ineligible person involved in collecting the application. So what if they are a citizen, but it turns out they have some felony record in their background that they didn't tell you about? Well, your organization could be on the hook for each one of those people for $50,000. So really, that's what this is about. So, you know, keep those organizations from doing any sort of voter registration at all because it is just too dangerous. Judge Walker said in his ruling granting a preliminary injunction to this terrible new suppression law, quote, Florida may, of course, regulate elections, including the voter registration process here, however, the challenged provisions exemplify something Florida has struggled with in recent years, namely governing within the bounds set by the United States Constitution. Hmm. Ouch. When state government power threatens to spread beyond constitutional bounds and reduce individual rights to ashes, the federal judiciary stands as a firewall, wrote Judge Walker, who was nominated by President Obama. Uh, quote, he reiterated, the free state of Florida is simply not free to exceed the bounds of the U.S. Constitution. Dan Tilley, the legal director of the ACLU in Florida, said this ruling fortifies the idea that all Floridians have a right to participate in building a stronger democracy through civic engagement. While this is a step in the right direction, he said our work is not finished. People in our communities, including non-citizens work tirelessly to assist in voter registration efforts to empower Floridians to vote on issues that impact their daily lives. So, uh, good. That was that law by Judge Walker has been knocked down for the moment. We'll see. It's just a temporary injunction until a, a trial is had, the case is heard. 
But this is not only in Florida, of course, where Republicans are bearing their anti-democracy, pro-autocracy predilections. In fact, uh, with marginal control now of the U.S. House, they are, in fact, hoping to crack down on the crime of voting, not just on a state-by-state level, but now at a federal level. House Republicans this week, as Joan McCarter at Daily Coast correctly frames it, are hoping to limit states' rights to set election laws, despite, you know, pretending to believe in states' rights whenever it's convenient for them. They are hoping to pass what they are calling the American Confidence in Elections Act. It's modeled on the voter suppression law passed in Georgia in 2021. That one's called SB 202, which uh, both the uh, Department of Justice and nearly a dozen nonpartisan voting rights organizations are currently suing to block in Georgia, including, by the way, the Coalition for Good Governance in their own lawsuit against the bill uh, against the law uh, in which, by way of full disclosure, I uh, am a named plaintiff in that case, suing Georgia, representing the media. So the act, uh, the American Confidence in Elections Act, put forward by House Republicans now to uh, apply across the entire country, was approved by the House Administration Committee last week by the Republican majority there, and it would ban federal election funding to states that do not revise their own voting laws to mandate restrictive photo ID laws for voters among other attempts to both weaponize the federal government and, frankly, undermine states' rights. They are forcing these states to change their own laws under this bill. The Republicans want to ban third-party ballot assistance, which they label, quote, ballot harvesting, which, by the way, apparently the message didn't get through to them, but the Republican Party has now said they are in favor of ballot harvesting. And they've actually rolled out a national program called Bank Your Vote to collect early and absentee votes in advance of the 2024 election. But apparently nobody told the House Republicans, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, they're out of step, that their bill would actually cut off funds to states that allow the very thing that the Republican Party is now calling for. As McCarter, no- as McCarter notes... Uh, This uh, measure would harm Native American, rural, elderly, low-income voters who rely on people to help them vote by picking up and helping them turn in their ballots for them. The bill would also prevent states from using any federal funding to partner with outside groups like the League of Women Voters to conduct voter registration drives or voter mobilization The bill also includes a complete, yes, autocratic takeover of... Washington, D.C.'s elections from Mm. top to bottom, barring uh, many ballot drop box locations, ending same day voter registration, restricting the district's conducting of local elections, a federal takeover, an autocratic federal takeover. It would also remove funding uh, fundraising limits on political party organizations Because Lord knows there's not enough money and not enough dark money in our politics right now. This would allow even more money to flow into campaigns. 
and it would eliminate some of the few disclosures that outside organizations must make when they run political ads. This is what your Republican Party is trying to do in Congress and force over all 50 states and the District of Columbia and the territories, etc. Republicans introduced the first version of this bill last year as a response to Democrats' Freedom to Vote Act and their John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which actually makes it easier for legal voters of all parties to cast their votes. The measure, uh, the Democratic measure, provides more support for election workers. It includes some campaign finance reform for dark money. So we get more more transparency rather than less there. It bans partisan gerrymandering. It revives the Supreme Court's gutted portions of the Voting Rights Act, among other things that all Democrats claimed to support in Congress last year. Oh, that's right. It also uh, mandates a hand-marked paper ballot, as I recall. All Democrats claimed to support it in Congress uh, last year, even though Joe Manchin was unwilling to reform the Senate filibuster in order to adopt what would have been the most critical voter protection and election reform uh, law since 1965's Voting Rights Act. Democrats are reintroducing those bills in Congress as well as the contrast between Democrats and Republicans or the pro-democracy party versus the anti-democracy party are made clearer by the day. There could even be a uh, uh, there, there couldn't, I should say, be a more stark contrast between the parties ahead of the 2024 election, writes McCarter. Over at Daily Coast. Yeah, and when when you put it like that, it really does boil down to a very stark choice, very clear. Democracy versus anti-democracy. Yep. Pro-voter versus anti-voter. I mean, the stakes are really high, and the choice is super stark, and it's very helpful for the Republicans to have made that very clear for everybody. Well, and it's also, you know, because I uh, will hear from folks uh, in the media, oh, we can't report this way because that would be partisan. No, it is not partisan. It really isn't. Uh, You support democracy or you do not support democracy. You support democracy or you support autocracy. Take your pick. I'm in favor of those who support democracy. Oh, it turns out to be mostly Democrats right now. Well, then I will support that uh, candidate against an anti-democracy candidate who happens to be a Republican. I don't think this should be particularly controversial. I think we need to be very, very clear about this in the media. And I think the fact that so many are not clear about this because they're afraid of sounding partisan about something which is not partisan. But I think that's why the public in general is unclear about this. To me, the stakes are very, very clear. But the media would rather spend time on things like horse race, etc., instead of the stakes. So what are the stakes? Well, if you have any questions still about those stakes, I, I cited this uh, article a few days ago and I described it briefly. It, but it bears spending a bit more time with to make certain that you understand the details in this story and the very real stakes for 2024, in case you're still wondering what I'm talking about when I frame 2024 as as I will continue to do in the year ahead as a critical moment of democracy versus autocracy, as reported by The New York Times on Monday. 
Donald J. Trump and his allies are planning a sweeping expansion of presidential power over the machinery of government if voters return him to the White House in 2025, reshaping the structure of the executive branch to concentrate far greater authority directly in his hands. The plans to centralize more power in the Oval Office stretch far beyond the former president's recent remarks that he would order a criminal investigation of President Biden, signaling his intent to end the post-Watergate norm of Justice Department independence from White House political control. But it is far broader than that. The goal is to alter the balance of power by increasing the president's authority, not just over the Department of Justice, but over every part of the federal government that now operates either by law or tradition with any measure of independence. Those days will be over. Trump intends to bring so-called independent agencies like the Federal Communications Commission, or the Federal Trade Commission, which enforces uh, various antitrust uh, and, and consumer protection rules and laws against businesses, to bring all of those so-called independent agencies under his direct presidential control. He wants to revive the currently unlawful practice of impounding funds. In other words, refusing to spend money that Congress has appropriated for programs that a president may not like, a tactic that lawmakers actually banned under President Nixon. Trump, of course, and the Republicans who are putting these plans together for uh, for whichever Republican is next in the White House, by the way. It does not only have to be Trump. But Trump and those guys, they do not care what was actually banned by law during uh, and after the disgraceful presidency of Richard Nixon. They view those attempts at reigning in executive power to be for snowflake liberals and deep staters. Trump has said he intends to strip employment protections from tens of thousands of career civil servants, making it easier to replace them, to fire them, if they are deemed to be obstacles to his agenda. And he plans to scour intelligence agencies, the State Department, the defense bureaucracies, and remove any and all officials that he has vilified as, quote, the sick political class that hates our country. John McEntee, a former Trump White House personnel chief who attempted to remove those considered disloyal to Donald Trump back in 2020, he's now involved in mapping out this new approach to, quote, fundamentally reorient the federal government, as he described it. Our current executive branch, he said, was conceived of by liberals for the purpose of promulgating liberal policies. There is no way to make the existing structure function in a conservative manner. What's necessary is a complete system overhaul. The so-called uh, that's that's the so-called conservative way, I guess, to govern to radically shake up decades of institutional and traditional order, throw it out and start over from scratch. See why I do not regard Republicans as conservatives in any way, shape or form. 
That's what they are telling us they are doing. This is not me, some you know lefty on the radio, oh, Republicans are going to do this, they're going to do that. This is what the Republicans themselves are telling us they will do. That Donald Trump is telling us he will do. That these people working on this plan for Donald Trump or any other Republican who next ends up in the White House, this is what they are telling us they will do. They are telling us they're, they're going to do it because when they win, if they win, they want to be able to say, well, we told you what we were going to do. We got a mandate to do it. Russell Vaught, who ran the Office of Management and Budget in the Trump White House and now runs a policy organization called the Center for Renewing America, is crafting this plan with the Heritage Foundation for whichever Republican is next in the White House. Vaught explained, quote, what we're trying to do is identify the pockets of independence and seize them. They are saying it out loud as they describe their uh, $22 million presidential transition operation that they call Project 2025. You get it now? It's democracy versus autocracy. Ruth Ben-Ghiat, the uh, NYU historian and expert on fascism and authoritarian leaders, she commented on this Times article a couple of days uh, after it was published in her newsletter this week, explaining that what these folks are trying to do is called autocratic capture. She describes that as widespread purges to get rid of non-loyalists, to jumpstart a remaking of government so the leader can steal and repress with immunity. She quotes from her own book, uh, called Strongmen, Mussolini to the Present, about the uh, endgame here in at least one area of autocratic capture, that is purges of the judiciary that results in a justice system that exonerates crooks or doesn't prosecute them at all. She says, operating with no checks on executive power is the dream of every authoritarian, Trump included. If he returns to the White House, he will make this a priority, she warns. I would add that the uh, 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 reminder that this uh, for, for this Project 2025, while created by Trumpers, is actually for any and all Republicans who end up in the White House. I guess I can't remind you of that enough. The agenda being pursued has deep roots in the decades-long effort by far-right legal thinkers to undercut what has become known as the administrative state, agencies that enact regulations aimed at keeping the air and water clean, sounds terrible, and food and drugs and consumer products safe. But, you know, that cuts into business profits. So they would like to dismantle that now as well. Its legal underpinning is something called the unitary executive theory, which rejects the idea that the government is composed of three separate branches with overlapping powers to check and balance each other. Instead, the theory's adherents argue that Article 2 of the Constitution gives the president complete control of the executive branch from top to bottom. Congress cannot empower any agency head to make any decision or restrict the president's ability to fire that agency head. Mr. Trump said at a recent rally in Michigan, quote, we will demolish the deep state. 
He said, quote, we will drive out the globalists. We will cast out the communists, Marxists and fascists, and we will throw off the sick political class that hates our country. His former campaign manager, Steve Bannon, echoed that thoughts at a separate rally. This is a crusade. This is a holy war against the deep state. Donald Trump is our instrument for retribution. There you go. Get it now. Democracy versus autocracy. It's a simple choice, at least for this single issue voter. Take your pick. All right. More on the empire straight ahead and our latest Green News report. That's all ahead on today's broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Trying to scare our listeners <laughs> even more than they have already been scared. <laughs> Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Green News Report is up momentarily with the scary Desi Doyen. Yes. But yeah, you know, in somewhat related-ish news between the autocracy and the empire and the horrific nature of our climate crisis of late, it doesn't hurt, I think, before we get to the Desi's Green News Report to sort of start with a kind of hilarious, if insane, sort of response to the climate crisis via Washington Post this week. And it is insane. Um, Marissa Ayati writes, the getup is elaborate, a balaclava. That's one of those spandex head and face coverings, thermal underwear and a compression shirt. A Halloween store Darth Vader costume complete with a helmet. John Rice tries to make his near-annual Darth Valley run (laughs) as difficult as possible. He waits for the hottest day in the weather forecast. He dons his multi-layered outfit and he sets out for Death Valley, where he then runs a mile as fast as he possibly can at the hottest time of the day. It's exhausting. It's exhilarating. It's also, Rice freely admits, incredibly stupid. (laughs) Quote, I don't agree with anybody else doing this. He said, adding, quote, I don't even really agree with me doing this particularly. In fact, the paper notes, people who know a few things about heat in California's Death Valley believed by some to be the hottest place on Earth. Uh, emphasized the danger of even being in such scorching uh, conditions, let alone exercising in them. 
let alone with all of this gear on. The unofficial high in the Death Valley National Park on Sunday when Rice did his latest run was 128 degrees Mm. Fahrenheit. Jeff Goodell, the author of The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet, said, quote, you spend very long in temperatures like that and you and you have any kind of health problems at all, you'll end up dead. Rice, who is 52 years old now and clearly insane, said that (laughs) he knows he knows the risks. He says he trains for this all year. Uh, For this tradition, he trains by running around his neighborhood near Santa Fe and throwing punches to the beat of EDM music in his home, in his in-home sauna. He says working out in the 150-degree room several times a week is meant to acclimate his body to the temperatures in Death Valley, which is even less tolerable than usual this week as a heat wave blankets much of the country. Rice said he makes sure to... Uh, select routes uh, in Death Valley with cars nearby in case he feels himself overheating and needing to ask for help. His wife, Laura, who clearly hates him, (laughs) accompanies him to the park most years and waits at the end. How thoughtful. She waits at the end, blasting the cars. he shows up. Right. Blasting the cars, air conditioning, and preparing to toss him a cold towel. Very nice of her. Each year, she jests with her husband that he should uh, make his will uh, up to date before going. (laughs) John Rice began running in Death Valley in 1997 when he and a friend were cruising around the U.S. in a rented Mustang. They started heading down one of the drives in... um, In Death Valley, Rice, for some reason, decided to get out of the car and run. He ended up jogging four miles. Uh, Of course, that was 25 years ago. And uh, he but he ran four miles as his friend continued to drive. He recalled, he said, by the end, he was not feeling well. He started to hallucinate and became convinced that he was heading in the wrong direction, even though they were on a one way road. Despite the uh, that terrible first time experience, Rice was hooked. He uh, running in extreme heat was a big challenge, but it was one that he said he wanted to accept just with more preparation next time. Again, for some reason, none of this is clear. Which he doesn't even seem to be clear on himself. No, but he keeps doing it. For the next few years, he traveled uh, from uh, his native England to California to run in Death Valley. He later moved to Colorado and then Missouri and New Mexico, traveling religiously to the park from wherever he lived. Around 2010, he wanted to make the runs even harder for some reason. So he thought that wearing a mask and black clothing, black clothing would do the trick when he remembered that parts of the Star Wars franchise were filmed in Death Valley, probably in winter, John. Uh, He got the idea to dress up as the villain of the series, Darth Vader. He's done the Darth Valley run most years since then. With breaks during the coronavirus pandemic and a cross-country move, sometimes other runners join him occasionally in a Chewbacca costume. (laughs) Anyway, that, of course, is insane. Do not do what John Rice is doing or anything like it, despite the great 
photos that it makes of Darth Vader, <laughs> Darth Vader running down the the highway in Death Valley with his mask and his tennis shoes and his cape flying behind him. But incredibly enough, with all of that, Death Valley was not even the hottest spot in the world over this past week, at least going by the feels-like temperature index. For details on that and much more from our quickly worsening climate crisis, uh, hang around for our latest GNR in just a moment. But in other news from the Empire, in Philadelphia on Thursday, President Biden delivered remarks at a local unionized shipyard highlighting the administration's economic policies with a particular focus on growing U.S. domestic renewable energy jobs, in this case, most specifically, wind energy jobs. At the shipyard, Biden attended a steel-cutting ceremony for the Acadia, one of several specialized ships that are now under construction in various U.S. states that will be used to build offshore wind farms. In the remarks on Thursday, Biden highlighted a a key component of the Democrats' landmark climate law, the Inflation Reduction Act, which establishes incentives in every state to build a clean energy framework, sort of the way the defense contracting system has worked for decades. It spreads incentives and jobs and manufacturing across all 50 states, protecting it from efforts to cut or repeal the law later, at least in theory. That was uh, the way energy reporter David Roberts explained it to us on this show many months ago, and now we see it playing out. Yep. Um, here was the president on Thursday touting those efforts at the Philly shipyard. When I took office, I set a goal of producing 30 gigawatts of offshore energy wind by 2030. 30 gigawatts is enough to power 10 million homes. Now, help put us on a path to 100% clean energy by 2035. By 2035, all electricity you turn in is all going to be clean energy. It's not hypothetical. Construction is already underway in two major projects off the East Coast. And here in the Philly shipyard, Great Lakes, Dredge, and Dock is also stepping up to help meet the clean energy goals. Here today, workers of nine different unions will start building a vessel called the Acadia. Be the first vessel of its kind that's made in America. American-owned, American-operated. And the rocks will come from American quarries and be loaded at American ports. Steel for vessels being made by the United States steelworkers in Indiana. The engine will be made in the United States electrical radio and machine workers in Pittsburgh. The crew is going to be American Marine Mariners from Seafarers International Union. The turbine themselves will be as tall as the buildings in Center City, Philadelphia. That's how big they are. And the blades, 110 yards long. I went to see them being made in Colorado. It's breathtaking. And I might add, notwithstanding what the other guy said, Windmills do not cause cancer. (laughs) Before the pandemic, supply chain wasn't a phrase that most Americans ever thought about. But today, after delays in parts and products, everybody knows what a supply chain means and why they matter. Our Investing in America agenda is bringing our clean energy supply chains home. Since I took office, we've seen more than $16 billion 
in new offshore wind investments, including 18 offshore wind vessels, 12 manufacturing facilities, and 13 ports. Today, we announced the first ever offshore wind sail in the Gulf of Mexico. We're going to the Gulf. <laughs> Think I'm kidding. <laughs> Ain't seen nothing yet. Across the Delaware River in Paulsboro, New Jersey, workers are welding the steel foundation for another large-scale wind project. That's going to create more than 3,000 good-paying jobs. A project off the coast of New York will use a vessel built in the shipyards of Louisiana, Mississippi, and Florida, rely on electrical substations, engineered in Kansas and made in Texas. The Inflation Reduction Act offers tax credits for projects using American-made iron, steel, manufactured projects, so our clean energy future will be made in America. I mean it. I believe him. He, he means it. Yeah. President Biden speaking at the uh, Philly shipyard on on Thursday. We we can make windmills with that have blades 110 yards long yeah. at this point? Yeah, they're way more efficient, and they generate so much energy. That's a football field. Yeah. How high are these things? Hundreds of feet. I it's guess insane. so. It is insane. But it works. They're doing it in the U.K.'s North Sea right now. We're just trying to catch up. We're just trying to catch up with the U.K.? Yep. Man, we suck. All right, <laughs> we better get to work. And we better get to a quick break. Come back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report. That's straight ahead on your broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is supporting you and the things that you care about. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. Right now, as much as ever. If you choose to support us, you can do it really easily, safely, and quickly via bradblog.com slash donate. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. I hear a lot of uh, Democrats complaining, oh, Democrats are so terrible at, you know, letting the public know what they are doing. (laughs) Uh, And it's true. They are not good. But so when the president goes out and tells the public what they are doing, it would be nice if the media passed it on to the American people what the president said about what the administration is actually doing, particularly when it's so helpful to so many Americans, creates so many jobs in so many many states. states. I know, I know. Uh, Oh, and saves the planet at the same time because it's renewable energy. little things like that. Speaking of saving the planet, let's get to it. Our latest Green News Report. These are not your normal weather systems of the past. They have arrived as a consequence of climate change. United Nations warns governments must move faster to adapt to extreme heat. If they are looking for any relief from the heat there in the U.S., they're not going to find it here in Europe. Heat wave in Europe and the Middle East sets astonishing new records. Plus, wind and solar on track to provide more than a third of the world's electricity by 2030. And not a moment too soon. All of those stories and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. The climate has always changed dramatically. 
So do you think humans are causing this change? And do you think that we can stop or slow it down? I mean, I don't... Honestly, I don't know how much is being changed or not as much as I know that putting electric vehicles on the road is not the answer to what you're doing. (laughs) Nikki Haley doesn't know what the problem is, but she knows what the solution isn't. Good stuff. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, well, the fossil fuel companies must pay very, very well to continue this lie, this denial from all of these right-wingers for this many years. What do you have for us today that is not a bunch of lies and denial? (laughs) Well, first, for the ninth time in just two weeks in the United States, torrential rains have triggered another flash flood disaster. This time in western Kentucky, the town of Mayfield saw a record 11 inches of rain in 24 hours just a little more than a year after being struck by a catastrophic tornado. According to NOAA, intense rainfall events have increased dramatically in the U.S. since the 1970s due to human-caused global warming because a warmer atmosphere holds more moisture. A new analysis from the nonprofit First Street Foundation warns that official federal flood maps actually underestimate flood risks across the U.S. The researchers warn that outdated flood maps and the lack of a comprehensive national rainfall database are hampering efforts to prepare communities for more frequent intense storms and floods. How can anyone even prepare for 11 inches of rain in 24 hours? We'll need to find out. Unfortunately. Human-caused climate change, combined with the newly formed El Nino, continue to shatter heat records worldwide. The relentless heat is also triggering wildfires in Canada, California, Syria, Turkey, and Greece. Rome has set new consecutive all-time heat records on a near-daily basis this week. In the Middle East, the heat index, the feels-like temperature of combined heat and humidity, reached an astonishing 152 degrees, approaching the limit of humans survivability. 152 degrees. Yes. Death Valley, California, set a new all-time world record for the hottest overnight temperature on the planet, 120 degrees. Mm. And as we go to air, Phoenix has obliterated its record for the most consecutive days at 110 degrees or higher, with no signs of stopping. A new study confirms that, yes, heat waves are more prolonged now than in the past due to man-made climate change. You don't say. Evidence increasingly links melting of the Arctic to a slowdown in the jet stream. That is causing heat domes and storms to stall in place, intensifying their effects. An analysis of data from NOAA shows that in the 50 most populous U.S. cities, heat waves today are more intense and on average last at least a day longer than in the 1960s. And the heat wave season today is about 50 days longer. Incredible. The World Meteorological Organization this week warned that governments must do more and more quickly to protect their citizens as these prolonged heat waves and high overnight temperatures increase heat-related deaths. And yet you have these right-wingers talking to each other on the campaign trail pretending that none of this is happening. In a press conference, the WMO's John Nairn said that heat waves are among the deadliest of weather disasters, but the extremes unfolding around the world today are going to get worse. We are seeing continuing growth in the frequency, duration and intensity of heat waves. These events will continue to grow in intensity 
and the world needs to prepare for more intense heat waves. So um, we're in for a bit of a ride, I'm afraid. Stop the ride. I want to get off. But finally, some good news. In the UK, over the first half of July, renewable energy sources accounted for nearly 70% of that country's electricity supply, with the use of coal remaining at zero. And a new study out this week finds that wind and solar projects are on track to account for more than a third of the world's electricity by 2030, demonstrating that the energy sector can change fast enough to meet global climate goals. Plus, rapidly expanding renewable energy is paying off. The study found that the more renewable energy countries install, the cheaper it gets. Well, I don't know what the problem is, but I know the answer is electric cars. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. We're having a heat wave, a tropical heat wave. The temperature's rising, it isn't surprising. She certainly yeah. can, can, can. Hey, we're having a heat, a heat wave. wave. Oh, most definitely. That's a nice way to put it. <laughs> that is. I do want to say, though, that we do have some control yeah. over what happens really? to our planet. Yes, oh. if we stop emitting greenhouse gases, if we just continue this transition and speed it up away from fossil fuels, we do have some control over I this. I have no idea how to do that. All I know is using electric vehicles is the <laughs> wrong way to do it. Boy, they have a campaign over there on Fox and on the right against electric vehicles. Yes, All do. of a sudden, it's like they flipped a switch. It's like they turned the key in the transmission. How's that? <laughs> and all of a sudden, they are out against electric vehicles. We yep. will have to push back against that, I suspect, in a future show. But for now, we got to get the heck out. My thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is greatly appreciated as ever. If you missed any portion of today's program, well, I got good news for you. You can download it for free anytime at bradblog.com, along with any show we have ever done, uh, going back almost two decades now. I almost said two centuries. It feels like it. <laughs> it does. Uh, and it's all free to you. However, those of you who stop by bradblog.com and click on one of those donate links to make a donation of one time or a monthly donation of any amount you like, well, you are the ones that help keep us going and make the show available to everyone else in the whole wide world. So thank you for that. You can also go straight to bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. You'll find uh, follow and share me on Facebook's Twitters and Mastodons at the Brad blog. That is it. We will see you there until we see you here next time. Please stay cool out there. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Mr. A, we mean to say we really had a heat wave today. Ah! I'm Rick Smith. And this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1934. That was the day that came to be known as Bloody Friday. 
Minneapolis Teamsters had been on strike for three days in their third strike of the year. Trucking bosses had reneged on their May settlement. They refused to recognize union organization of inside workers. In the period between strikes, the union had documented hundreds of cases of discrimination. Now, 7,000 Teamsters effectively shut down trucking throughout the city. Local 574 leaders established a daily strike bulletin. The organizer, as it was called, would serve to guide strikers to victory. In his book, Revolutionary Teamsters, historian Brian Palmer notes that the first few days of the strike had been quiet. Then, on this day, police attempted to break the picket lines by running what seemed to be a lone scab truck through the line. It was later discovered the truck was moving no merchandise, but was used to draw strikers into a confrontation. When flying pickets moved to stop the truck, they were ambushed. Police opened fire on unarmed picketers and then sprayed those who attempted to escape with buckshot. At least 48 were wounded. Striker Harry Ness and unemployed council supporter John Beller were killed. Palmer notes that Ness had been shot point blank in the chest. Doctors pulled 38 slugs from his body. His deathbed injunction repeated word of mouth among the strikers, tell the boys not to fail me now. More than 40,000 turned out to pay their respects to the World War I veteran and father of four. Palmer adds that Bloody Friday had lasted a matter of minutes, but its meaning would leave a mark on the very fabric of Minneapolis's socioeconomic relations. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com.